This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. But first, we start closer to home with the growing threat here of random stranger attacks in Vancouver. Four random attacks a day on average in the city. And on the weekend, it was 40 minutes of mayhem near Oak and West 10th. This neighborhood terrified by a single random attacker who chased and threatened people on the streets, destroying property along the way. Five women targeted. We've got Steve Addison standing by here from the Vancouver Police Department. First, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Grace Key. Then he kicked his window in. Karen McDonald describes a terrifying spree of attacks that spanned over 40 minutes involving at least five female victims and ended outside her building. So it was about noon and I was like at home and I just heard this smashing of glass, right? So I didn't know what if somebody had broken some like plates or something like that. Then I heard running and running. Around noon Saturday, a man allegedly grabbed a 25-year-old woman by the hair and punched her as she walked on Oak Street near 10th Avenue. A bystander helped her break free. She and other frightened people ran into a building, but the suspect allegedly ran after them, breaking through the front door. He kicked it in, but he had, apparently had like one of the pieces of glass, and he was chasing them with his glass, saying, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. So it was just it was like glass and blood everywhere. The incident started earlier when the man jumped on a woman's car, made shooting gestures, banged on the vehicle, tried to open the door and then chased her as she drove away. 30 minutes later, the suspect allegedly chased a couple of joggers near the entrance of an apartment building. The joggers managed to get away by ducking into a building with the suspect smashing the front door. He then allegedly cornered a woman who witnessed the incident and demanded her phone. All right, let's discuss this now with my guest. Sergeant Steve Addison, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Steve, thank you for coming on once again today. No problem, Mike. Okay, so it's just another day in Vancouver here. we got 40 minutes of mayhem and insanity here. I mean, this just sounds terrible. I mean, we've talked before about this surge in random attacks uh, for a day on average, but this sounds like it was on average 40 minutes here in this, in this uh, neighborhood. What can you tell me about it? Yeah, this must have been incredibly terrifying for everybody involved. Uh, this was an incident that occurred Saturday around noon, and for about 40 minutes we had uh, um, a man who we believe was, uh, like, based on his behavior and his demeanor, was likely experiencing some kind of psychosis who um, simply, quite simply went on, a, went on a crime spree. We had uh, five women who were attacked. They uh, ran in fear. We had a, a number of people who we know witnessed this, and likely a number of people who were uh, also victimized who probably fled uh, in fear without reporting it to the police. So uh, we were able to arrest the suspect, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, but we're still looking for more information to, to understand exactly what happened during that entire 40 minutes because we have we still have certain gaps in time where we don't know exactly what was going on. So we're still looking for people to come forward. And a number of people have come forward since Saturday, uh, and we're working with them now to piece it all together. Okay, so when police responded to this situation, was it was it easy to locate a suspect there or...? What happened well, then? 
Well, this initially occurred around noon where there was a woman in her vehicle uh, in traffic and she was approached by a man who started banging on her car, making uh, um, threatening gestures, like shooting gestures uh, with his hand. She left. Uh, the suspect allegedly chased her down the street. About 30 minutes later, we started getting more and more phone calls uh, from various people who were uh, reporting that they were uh, either being assaulted or watching people being assaulted. So when you're a police officer and this is, this kind of call comes over the radio, no matter where you are in the city, you respond to it. Uh, we were able to respond to the area and we located the man uh, just outside one of the apartment buildings. It was a little bit challenging because we didn't know exactly where he was as he was going in and out of buildings um, as he was on this crime spree. Fortunately, we were able to arrest him and take him into custody without uh, any uh, serious injury to him, uh, to the public, or to the police. Okay, and reports that I have seen said that there, I don't believe there's been a, a name released of this person who's been arrested. Is that is that correct? Uh, no, the individual was charged yesterday. His name is okay. Cole Stanley Martin, and he's been charged with a number of offenses, including uh, assault, assault with a weapon, assaulting police, and uttering threats, as well as break and enter. Um, this okay. investigation isn't over. It's uh, When we arrest a person, uh, that's not the end of the investigation. More oftentimes, it's just the beginning. So we will continue to investigate. We'll continue to gather evidence. And there will be, as we gather that evidence, we will submit that to Crown Council for consideration as well. Okay, and as often happens during these type of incidents, there's always seems to be this one line in every media story that the person who was arrested is well known to the police. So, and this is another example of that, right? Like you knew who, you guys were aware of who this person was. Is that right? Yeah, so, yeah, so I don't know this individual's uh, exact police history, and I'm always a little bit hesitant to get in, into a person's criminal history. I think it's safe to say that the individual we're dealing with here uh, has, uh, has, a number of, uh, has a number of problems and is dealing with a number of issues. Like I say, we believe he was uh, likely in psychosis, whether that's drug-induced or mental health, we don't know. And I don't say that at all to uh, negate any responsibility uh, for his actions, but that's uh, something that is uh, certainly a factor in something that is a factor in a lot of these cases that we're seeing throughout the city. Um, what's perhaps most concerning about this, aside from just the surface level facts, is that this is a, a fairly uh, quiet residential neighborhood where this happened. So this is no longer an issue that's just confined to the downtown core, the downtown east side. We're now seeing it start to creep into other areas of the city. Uh, you can hear it in the voices of the people that you clipped on the, on the, on the uh, global newscast there. Yeah. People are terrified. People are frightened. Yeah, for sure. And for good reason. And, you know, the stuff that's going on, like I take your point there about this could be Mrs. Mental Health, the psychosis, who knows this could be drug addiction. I mean, and people can see that. I mean, they see people acting this way on the street. People who live in Vancouver have witnessed this kind of thing. And they know that people are, are going through some sort of mental health episode. I mean, it's obvious, right? And because it, there's no other rational explanation. For, for what's going on in some of these random attacks. So how frustrating is this for the police to continue to pick up people, charge them, bring them in, and then what happens? I mean, do they get treatment? Do they go into, yeah. do they get mental health counseling, or do they just go back on the street to just keep doing it over again? So it's frustrating and it's disheartening, not just for the police, but for everybody, because this keep hap keeps happening. Um, the VPD, we keep arresting people. Um, we are arresting, in these stranger attacks, we're arresting people daily, uh, multiple times a week, yet it keeps happening with different people. And sadly, Mike, um, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it will likely continue. It will likely happen until, as a society, we develop more 
social supports, more wraparound supports for people who are dealing with a lot of these complex issues, things like substance abuse and things like mental health, which are fueling uh, a lot of these cases that we're seeing. So we're working to be part of that solution. We're working with our partners, but we can't do it alone. We need help from various agencies and various levels of government to, to put an end to this. All right, Steve, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Let's talk about the war in Ukraine now. It is day six of the Russian invasion. Ukrainian forces continue to bravely fight and resist, but it is now looking extremely dire and dangerous indeed at this hour. That 40-mile-long convoy of armored Russian vehicles has reached the outskirts of Kiev increasingly difficult for frightened residents to flee the capital city under fire here. A TV tower was hit uh, just in the last few hours as city in the city casualties reported there meanwhile yesterday in ukraine's second largest city kharkiv russian missiles and rockets hit the cultural heart of that city freedom square an opera house a concert hall and government offices hit in this attack I've got Tamara Krachenko standing by from the University of Victoria. First, have a listen to this report here now from Kharkiv and that attack there. This is ITV reporter Dan Rivers. Well, we're in Freedom Square here in the middle of uh, Kharkiv that was hit uh, by a strike last night. You can see complete devastation here. Um, the top of this building uh, behind me has been completely taken out. It's just rubble all over the streets. Uh, and people wandering around assessing the damage. Clearly, we're not going to loiter here long, but it seems like Russia has switched tactics from trying to hit military targets at the beginning of this war to now trying to take out symbols of the Ukrainian state. Uh, at the moment, though, the response from the Ukrainians has been one of complete defiance. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Tamara Krachenko. She's a professor at public administration at the University of Victoria. She has family back in Ukraine, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Tamara, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Okay. Um, may I ask you, please, about your own family situation? You've got family back in Ukraine, right? Or how are they doing? Um, yeah, so my sister and her family, she has um, three children. They're ages three and under, and they live in Kiev, right near the center of the city where I imagine it will be full-on combat now. She managed to get out, but the place where she is is experiencing air raids and shelling. It is clear now that she, like so many others, will become a war refugee. They're going to try and flee to the border tomorrow. Um, I don't know which border, Romanian or Polish. I also have cousins in Kharkiv and friends and family all around. And in Kharkiv, I don't know if my cousin is alive. Um, beyond just hitting those targets, they bombed 90 residential buildings. They are hitting civilian residential targets as well as Ukrainian cultural heritage in an effort to destroy. Yeah, I'm sorry for the pain your family is going through here. I mean, it's just absolutely tragic. Uh, with these attacks on Freedom Square in Kharkiv, as you mentioned there, where you have family, you know, Putin had said at the start of this, well, they will be targeting military targets here but clearly that's not the case when you're bombing opera houses your thoughts let's be clear every word out of the kremlin is a lie and has been a lie for a long time they are hitting civilians murdering civilians they hit an orphanage they hit a kindergarten 
There was a demand from one city to allow children to leave. To, they communicated to the Russian army. The Russian army said no, and they kept shelling. These are crimes against humanity. I watched yesterday interviews of captured Russian soldiers and was surprised to hear the fellow say his name. It was Kravchenko. That's the same last name as me. Mm. How is it that a young man, 18 years old, with the same last name as me, feels okay going into Ukraine where people have the same last name as him and, and killing them, killing civilians, murdering en masse, destroying Ukrainian cities. I'd like to be very clear that anyone who has been paying attention for a while has seen the writing on the wall. There has been a dehumanizing fascist ethno-nationalism coming from the Kremlin for a very long time that was intended to essentially destroy Ukrainian identity. And the Kremlin has released information about their plan, and they call it the final solution for the Ukraine problem. Now, that terminology will ring true to First Peoples, the Jewish community, the Roma community, and many other communities who have faced such genocide. Tamara, let me play a clip here for you from uh, the Ukraine President Zelensky addressing the European Parliament. And Ukrainian forces continue to bravely resist here. There's been global outrage and condemnation to the Russian aggression. And here is Zelensky yesterday speaking to the European Parliament. You'll hear a voice of an interpreter here, and the interpreter gets emotional here. Have a listen. They'll get your thoughts. Freedom Square, can you imagine this morning two cruise missiles hit this Freedom Square? Dozens of killed ones. This is the price of freedom. We are fighting just for our land and for our freedom. Okay, so uh, President Zelensky addressing European Parliament yesterday. Can you comment a bit, Tamara, about you know, the resistance that's being shown here by Ukrainian forces and by Ukrainian people as a whole? Yes, well, Putin has been long obsessed with Ukraine. Um, people say that this is a war about the United States. No, it's really about smashing Ukrainians and Ukrainian identity. And there's a reason why they are putting, you know, they are bombing Ukrainian cultural institutions and why a Russian Orthodox priest and went to saboteur and a bunch of others went to sabotage at St. Michael's Cathedral. Um, this is about Ukrainian identity and culture and heritage. So who are Ukrainians and why do they fight so fiercely? Ukrainians are diverse peoples. They are Armenian and Syrian and Moldovan and Romanian and Polish and Ukrainian and Russian. I myself have Russian and Ukrainian heritage. Ukrainians, Ukrainian society, um, Ukrainian history has been a history of colossal oppression. And my own family history, my grandfather had leadership, you know, had some leadership in Ukrainian village. And under Stalin, his entire family was shipped off to a, a gulag in the middle of winter to Siberia to die. Um, the rest of his family and community, I mean, experienced the whole Donetsk, that's death, genocidal death, mass death by famine, which millions of Ukrainians were killed. We were, you know, experienced um, uh, during the Second World War, the, um, the Nazis came in and caused mass murder, including of the Jewish community. This is a country of diverse peoples who have faced colossal impression from imperialism, and they know what they're fighting for. 
They are fighting for their right to exist as a people, and Ukrainians want nothing more than to just be a normal country. That is what they want, and they, everything, you know, this really coalesced a lot in 2014. If anyone has Netflix, they can watch the, the documentary Winter on Fire about the re- Ukraine's revolution of dignity, which in, in a nutshell was a Kremlin puppet president said he would do an association agreement with Europe and then changed his mind last minute under pressure from Putin. And people just had enough. This guy had, you know, a palace on the outskirts of Kyiv, colossal corruption. He even had, astonishingly, a golden toilet installed in his bathroom. And students came out to protest the decision, and the crackdown was so violent. It was a breaking point for society. And they said, that's it. We have had enough of these kleptocratic corrupt, horrible, authoritarian leaders, and we just want to live as normal people, free people in a normal country that functions normally. And people rose up, and my sister was among them. And that was a turning point in Ukraine trying to do anti, real anti-corruption reforms, democratic reforms, real decentralization reforms, and has, it has such a robust civil society and that means that the Kremlin has lost control increasingly, and that infuriates Putin. Let, let, let me ask you, Tamara, about the global response to the crisis that we're seeing. Speaking to Tamara Krochenko from the University of Victoria, she has family in Ukraine. Uh, I'm going to play a clip here for you and get your thoughts. This is a dramatic exchange here yesterday between UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and he's confronted by a Polish reporter asking why... NATO doesn't take more steps to enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine. So have a listen to this and listen to Johnson's response, and I'll get your thoughts. Ukrainian people are desperately asking for the West to protect our sky. We are asking for the no-fly zone. We are saying in response that it will trigger World War III. But what is the alternative, Mr. Prime Minister? When you talk about the the no-fly zone, unfortunately, the implication of, of that is that the... Uh, the UK and uh, would be engaged in in shooting down uh, Russian planes. Uh, would be engaged in direct combat uh, with Russia. That's not something uh, that uh, we can do or that we've uh, that we've envisaged. Okay, so you, uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, there ruling out a no-fly zone. We've heard similar from U.S. President Joe Biden. Tamara, your thoughts on that? I understand why they're making that decision. I just wonder the threshold of death. You know, how many people... It's clear that the Kremlin is targeting civilians, that they don't care how many die. Um, This is a colossal war crime and humanitarian catastrophe. What is the threshold? How high do we let it go? I don't know. That's them for for them to decide. Tamara, I hope your family remains safe in Ukraine. Thank you for coming on and sharing your thoughts today. Can I offer one final word? Of course, yeah. I wish solidarity for all oppressed people. I have heard from my friends in Afghanistan who stand by in horror because they see and recognize this. Friends from other parts of the world, from from my um, indigenous friends who recognize oppression. It's time to change and stand for something different. And Ukrainians are fighting for, for certain values, and they're values of humanity. And I, that's my wish, is solidarity for all oppressed peoples and for us to really, really uphold the values of humanity and peace. Tamara, thank you for that. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much.
All right, we continue talking about the war in Ukraine. It is day six of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It is a dire and dangerous situation on the ground at this hour in Ukraine. Let's talk about how British Columbia can respond to this crisis. What about the calls now for the BC public sector pension plan to divest itself from investments in Russian companies? Let's discuss that now with my guest, Matt Dell. Matt is a BC civil servant. He is the host of the Best Coast Political Podcast on BC politics, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Matt, thank you for coming on today. Hey, Mike. Yeah, I'm glad to be here talking about this important issue. Thanks. Yeah, for sure, Matt. So as, as a provincial civil servant yourself, we're talking about your pension plan here, right? And thousands of other people invested in this plan, correct? That's right. I mean, it's yeah. got to be many thousands around British Columbia, teachers, municipal workers, healthcare workers. Uh, my wife is a healthcare worker. She's invested in the pension plan. Uh, same thing across Canada. You know, all provinces have public pension plans. We have the Canadian pension plan, which uh, of note made a conscious decision years ago not to have Russia as one of their markets. So it's precedent here. How much money is invested in Russian companies in this plan? In, in British Columbia's plan, a group of civil servants who are concerned about this added it all up. It's quite easy. It's public information. It's about $450 million invested in 20 or so companies, primarily oil and gas, mining, and banks. Yeah, what are some of the big companies? Like Gazprom is in there, right? Big, big state-owned oil and gas company. That's a big one. Yeah, Gazprom, uh, Luft Oil, all of these companies have ties to the oligarchs. They have ties to corruption in Russia. Um, I don't think many of us would know. Rosneft is the other big company that Shell and BP have divested from this week. You wouldn't know most of these companies, but these they're all tied to corruption. And just from a safety point of view, do we want to be investing in a corrupt country? Like, how is that a safe investment? Okay, so this uh, this pension plan is managed in British Columbia by, it's like a crown corporation, is that who manages it? It's an independent body, BC Investment Management Corporation. They're independent right. from government, but, you know, they do serve their members' interests, and I think a lot of members around the province uh, probably have an interest in not supporting the Russian economy. You know, also, Mike, like, what if Russia takes over Ukraine and they start giving favorable contracts to their mining companies on, on war-torn land? Is that the kind of thing BC wants to be invested in? You know, for me, no, I don't. Okay, speaking of Matt Dell calling for divestment of Russian companies and BC's public sector pension plan, this, uh, this company, BC Investment Management Corporation, Matt, has to date so far saying they're not, they're not going to divest from these Russian companies that... $450 million, that obviously sounds like a lot of money, but they say in the bigger scheme of things, it's just like a tiny fraction of this pension plan, like less than 1%, right? I think it's 0.2%, so it's a tiny fraction. So for yeah. me, that says it's a tiny fraction to get rid of. I think this is why the public pressure and, and you know people speaking their opinion is helpful because this is how you know groups make change. I, I do want to note, Mike, yesterday, Alberta pension plan, AIMCO, their CEO came online and said Alberta will be divesting their holdings from Russia as soon as possible. Uh, in addition, wow. their executive committee will be making humanitarian donations um, matched by all, all of their staff. So pretty cool precedent right next door, and um, hopefully this kind of helps lead to some change. Yeah, we just got 30 seconds here. I mean, if it's just 0.2% of the pension plan fund, you'd think it'd be, you know, it would be pretty simple matter to to drop those those parts of the plan 
But your thoughts? Yeah, he hit the sell button. I think you know the, other <laughs> countries are pulling Swift, the Swift banking system. That takes administrative capacity. This you just hit sell and you, you write down the loss, just like huge losses on Nortel and BlackBerry and all these other companies that have tanked in recent years. And that's something that I, I'd be willing to do for my own pension to help support Ukraine. Okay, Matt. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Thanks, Mike. All right. We continue talking about BC's gang war and its international connections now. You heard my conversation there with Kim Boland from the Vancouver Sun about police finally catching up to the former leader of the United Nations gang found hiding in plain sight in Puerto Rico. We talked last week on the show about that targeted hit in Thailand of Jimmy Slice Sandu, former high-ranking member of the same gang who was gunned down in Phuket, Thailand. Let's check in now with Stephen Matelski. Stephen is an organized crime expert. He's a professor at Mohawk College in Ontario. His book is Undercover, Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Stephen. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me back again. Yeah, you bet. Thanks a lot for coming on. So here we go with another sort of international dimension to the gang underworld here in British Columbia. I know this doesn't surprise you as a guy who follows this stuff closely. No, it doesn't at all, Mike. You know, when you look at the intricate network of these organized criminal groups, and when you look at B.C., and the amalgamation of organized crime, it is really transnational organized crime. So not only the rackets that these groups are working together internationally, it's when things go awry um, on the on the negative side, when people are getting killed, that people can be found anywhere in the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm kind of shocked by this story here. This this guy, Connor DeMonte, who's a former leader of this gang, had been wanted for like murder charges for more than a, a decade, and the police finally find him in Puerto Rico where he is involved in a, a charity, a beekeeping collective, believe it or not. This is unreal. Like this guy, you know, just out in plain sight with a, a double life in Puerto Rico. I guess he thought he couldn't get caught. Yeah, you know, it's that narcissistic uh, side to some of these criminals where they think they're smarter, they're above the law, that they can evade capture. And it's really evident with this case. I mean, you know, he, he didn't want his picture taken and, and everything, but he was really out there in terms of being, you know, in this community. And, and the irony, I think, to this is the Karma Honey Project. And, you know, when you see these fugitives go on the lam, karma is actually eventually going to catch up with them. And it's, it's one of two options, Mike. It's, you know, either in handcuffs, like in this case, or in a body bag. Yeah, and then you think about the other recent hit on Jimmy Sandu in Phuket, Thailand. This is another example where this is a guy who's basically on the run. He's probably marked man. He's got a target on his back. But, you know, his enemies caught up to him, and he got gunned down. I think he had like 18 bullets in his body there. He was got he was gunned down like Sonny Corle Corleone style there in Phuket, Thailand. Like are any of the are any of these guys safe? Like they think they they're going to go to some little pock corner of the world, and no one will find them. But maybe it's wrong for them to think that. No, they're not safe. And you know this really reminded me of of the hitman from British Columbia from not that uh, long ago, Dean Wuchar, who was closely affiliated with the Wolfpack. And when you talk about Hitman. I mean, this guy was the epitome of a hitman who uh, there was a major project, cocaine project in Ontario called Project Inc. with Nick Nero. It involved a lot of 
tentacles to British Columbia and the gangsters there. And Wuchar, when they finally intercepted the PGP messages on the phones, like Wuchar was literally a hitman for hire. The text was there, a hundred grand to get somebody whacked. And Wuchar came all the way out to Ontario uh, to kill Johnny Raposo uh, while he sat on a patio watching an international soccer game. So, you know, when you talk about the mobility and the, the transnational aspect to these criminals, you know, they have connections and tentacles to groups all across the world. Yeah, you've done a lot of work on some of the criminal enterprises and gangs all across Canada, in, including some of the uh, the mafia crime families that were operating in Montreal. Like, is the, is the mafia still a thing in, in Canada? Is it still in operation? 100%. You know, one of the, the old adage of the mafia is the code of omerta, you know, the, the code of silence. You see a lot of these turncoats, government witnesses, informants, but you still do get a lot of these sort of old school, uh, a lot of young and up and coming uh, from different generations, as we see in BC, that the mafia is still very well and alive. And just an example, Mike, and you talk about the, the mafia in Montreal, in their heyday, in their prime, it was the Rizzuto crime family. And when their boss, Vito, went to jail and was extradited to the USA in the 2000s, um, you know, his family was being, like, literally his crime and blood family were being murdered while he sat in a jail cell. And when he eventually came back to Canada, he took inventory of who was loyal and who wasn't. And one of those soldiers in his crime family was Moreno Gallo. And he was... Uh, purportedly seen, you know, shaking hands uh, with somebody on the other side who was trying to take over the Rizzutos. And he decided to retire and go down to Mexico. Well, within two to three months, he was gunned down mercilessly while sitting in a cafe. So when you talk about these criminals, whether they're going on the lam, whether they think they're out of the crime game or they're in retirement, their past is going to catch up to them, typically. Hey, Stephen, we just got one minute left here. When one of these gang leaders is taken down, whether they're targeted in a hit like we saw of Jimmy Sandu in Thailand or they're arrested by police after a global manhunt like we saw with this this UN former UN gang leader in Puerto Rico, does that power vacuum get immediately filled? Like It always seems like you take down one of these gang leaders, someone's right there to pop up to take his place. Mike, I've always used this analogy with a great white shark, you know, in these types of vicious attacks in organized crime, just like when a shark is attacking prey in the ocean. Um, you know, typically a great white shark is going to lose a couple front teeth. And right after that attack, very similar to the analogy of a mop hit, a gang hit, uh, you know, those front teeth are literally replaced by teeth in the second yeah. row of yeah. the mouth of that shark. This is no different, Mike, in this world. There is always somebody there to okay. fill that void and to step up. Stephen, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
All right, let's talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine now. It is day six of the war. It is a dire and dangerous situation in Ukraine at this hour as Russian forces bear down on the capital city of Kiev. The world community reacting with economic sanctions against Russia military assistance to the ukrainian army and now the global sporting community turning its collective back on russia russia now banned and boycotted by a lengthening list of world sanctioning bodies in sports including fifa the world governing body for soccer i've got rob keeler standing by from global athlete First, have a listen to this report now from CBS Sports. Breaking news here on CBS Sports HQ. This just in from FIFA. FIFA and UEFA have today decided together that all Russian teams, both national and club, shall be suspended from participation in both FIFA and UEFA competitions until further notice. The statement reads in part, football is fully united here and in full solidarity with all the people affected in Ukraine. Both presidents hope that the situation in Ukraine will improve significantly and rapidly so football can again be a vector for unity and peace amongst people. And for more on this, Ian Joy and our reporter James Benj join me now to discuss. James, I want to start with you because what more can you tell us and your reaction to this news is what? Um, uh, yeah, Poppy, in terms of reaction, this was always a matter of time. It's been building towards this over the past few days. We saw yesterday FIFA attempt to call the situation by uh, saying that Russia must play at neutral venues and not under its flag. That, that was never going to happen. And a spring of national associations saying they'd refuse to play them, including Poland, who were due to meet them in a World Cup qualifier, and US soccer as well. So it was inevitable. All right, that report there from CBS Sports says Russia banned now by FIFA, also UEFA, one of the major governing bodies for soccer. Other global athletic organizations uh, turning its back on uh, the on Russia, the World Athletics Council, the International Ice Hockey Federation, Formula One Racing has canceled the Russian Grand Prix scheduled for this fall the list is getting longer here sports organizations banning russia let's discuss now with my guest rob keeler rob is the director general of global athlete he's the former deputy director of the world anti-doping agency and i'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show rob thanks for coming on today uh, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Rob, the last time we talked, we were talking about Russian doping at the Olympic Games, and here we are a short time later talking about this terrible war in Ukraine and now more sanctions against Russia. What are your thoughts right now on the number of global sports sanctioning bodies now banning Russia? Well, I think that when we talked last time on, on your show, we talked about athletes forcing change. And Global Athlete has been the voice of the Ukrainian athletes that are hunkered down in bombshells. And they're the ones that were the first to come out publicly, loud and clear, with hundreds of Olympians and Paralympians demanding that the International Olympic Committee, the International Paralympic Committee, ban both Russia and Belarus from the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games. And now we see sporting federations take that lead. So my hat goes to the, the athletes in Ukraine who are brave enough to make that call. And I'm, I'm pleased that some sports have made that call. 
Okay, I'm checking out your Twitter feed, Rob, which I encourage people to follow, and I'm taking a look at the open letter from Ukrainian athletes to the IOC. Like, what is the status of this now? Like, can the IOC ban Russia, or is it up to individual sporting sanctioning bodies to ban Russia? Like, how does this work? Well, the IOC can ban Russia, as can the International Paralympic Committee. And and we're extension by saying Belarus as well. Yeah. The IOC has failed to deliver on its on its promise. Um, they have punted the ball to international federations, and now we're relying on the International Paralympic Committee to make a really, really important decision that shows that they favor athletes and athletes' calls over Russian and, and Belarusian interests. And it's an interesting thing, Mike, on that letter that is calling for reform signed by athletes. It's also signed by the Belarusian athletes and the chair of the Russian National Olympic Committee Athlete Commission. If that doesn't send a message, I don't know what does. Yeah, okay, let me just make sure I got this straight here now. So you're saying that the the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, they do have the power to ban Russia, but they're not they're not going they're not taking that step at this point. Is that right? That's correct. That's yeah. correct. And for time and time again, we have seen the the International Olympic Committee favor Russia over the the athletes and Russia yields a lot of influence on sport and it's clear that they yield a lot of influence on the IOC and you know one of the things Mike someone said is why are you making the athletes suffer yeah the reality is we are an athlete organization that doesn't want to see athletes suffer but we can't forget that Vladimir Putin and Igor Lukashenkov use sport as political propaganda and if you allow these athletes to compete as normal, they are going to use every ounce of this to promote and support that there's nothing wrong going on and what they're doing in Ukraine is acceptable. That's why their sacrifice needs to happen. I spoke to a Belarus, uh, a Ukrainian athlete a couple of days ago, and he said, Rob, I just came back from Beijing two weeks ago, competing for my country. Now I'm in Ukraine, I'm fighting for my country. I have a machine gun. I'm a student. I'm not an army person, but I'm willing to fight. Those are the words that the IOC needs to continue to hear in the IPC to ensure that swift action is taken immediately. Well, wow. speaking to Rob Keeler here, he's Director General of Global Athlete. This is the organization that is stepping up here to represent athletes in Ukraine and the call for further sanctions against Russia. And I'm not surprised you're getting choked up there, Rob, because I know how deeply involved you've been with this, been on this file here in the past week. I mean, when we take a look at, you know, when you think of the Olympic movement, and I've covered Olympic Games here in the past, and there's always that that pledge at the beginning of any Olympic Games, and they've got this, this sort of code of, of global peace through sports, right, to unite the world in peaceful competition that's supposed to go beyond war and beyond political disputes how is that like do you think they're li- the ioc is living up to their own code of conduct and their own standards here right now if they're not taking like tougher action at this point they are not living up to their own standards and they haven't lived up to their own standards for a while yeah. i mean it's a simple call from from athletes to make a, a it's a tough decision but it's the right one um there's a reason that hundreds of Olympians and Paralympians are making this call and are so frustrated 
by the way the IOC is managing everything they have to dealt with had to deal with over the past two years and this they can't ban the Russian Olympic Committee and the Russian Olympic Committee and the Belarusian Olympic Committee to send a strong message to the world that this war is unacceptable yeah it, it, it's it's a total letdown of their 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 call for peace right and instead instead of doing that, they are calling on individual sports federations and sports event organizers to effectively ban Russia and Belarusian athletes and officials from international competition. So does that, at the end of the day, when you take a look at the, the lengthening list of organizations here that are banning Russia, does that effectively come down to an, an effective ban on, on Russia and, and pretty much all global sports? Or are there any sports that are still allowing Russia to compete? Yeah, I mean, the, the International Swimming Federation just announced that they're going to let their athletes, the Russian athletes, compete under neutral flags. Um, we've seen that before in, in other events, uh, such as the, China, the Beijing Games uh, that just happened a couple of weeks ago, uh, where they were under the Olympic athletes of Russia. Lead, real leaders make tough decisions. And when you, if you're the IOC, you have to make a tough decision. And the, in put politics aside and, and develop your decisions on principle. And that principle decision is to take leadership and ban the Russian Olympic Committee at the same time, and the Belarusian Olympic Committee at the same time, make that recommendation that international federations do the same. And kudos to those ones that have stood up and have made those changes. But leaders, the leaders of the IOC have, have really just punted the responsibility where they could take a lead. Rob, thank you for your tremendous leadership on this file, and I, I appreciate you taking the time for us today. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you, Mike. All right, let's talk about the soaring cost of living now. Inflation at record high, housing prices up, gas prices, groceries, everything going up, up, and away. Are your wages going up just as fast to keep pace with your costs? Lots of people are falling behind. Let's discuss now with my guest, Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reid Institute. Shachi, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me. Okay, Shachi, let's talk about this brand new survey from Angus Reid. Lots of people struggling here to make ends meet. What did you find out? So what we're finding, Mike, is a couple of things. First of all, everyone's noticing rising prices. So that's, that's not a shocker. It's affecting everybody regardless of income or what's going on with them. But just because everyone's noticing it doesn't mean that everyone's experiencing it the same way. So if you've got someone who um, is dealing with a, a higher household income, uh, are a little bit older, a little bit more settled in their life financially, Yes, you're noticing the price of gas going to almost two bucks a liter and going, what is that about? You're, you're noticing your grocery bill and going, ooh, that doesn't look good. But it's not necessarily going to put you under. We have a vulnerability among a lot of Canadians, almost half of them, who say they're either falling behind or they're really struggling in terms of trying to keep up with the cost of living. Uh, we live in, in around BC and in Metro Vancouver. Housing costs have already been that, that force that is always serving to sort of push people under the surface. It is, it is so crippling. You add to that now the cost of everyday items, the staples. We're not talking about the extras. We're talking about the staples. 
And you've got a situation where people are really making some very severe trade-offs in terms of what they're spending on, where they're putting their money in order to keep themselves whole. Okay, let's talk a little bit about some of the dollar figures here, because I really think this helps to put some perspective on it. So the survey you did asked people, let's say you get you get hit with an unexpected expense for $1,000. Something goes wrong, there's an emergency repair, your vehicle, whatever, 1000 bucks suddenly staring you in the face. Like, what did you find out in terms of people out there, are they able to handle an unexpected cost burden like that? Again, you've got folks who are okay who say, yeah, sure, no problem, I could absorb that. But the number of people who say, look, uh, I, I couldn't even absorb uh, an unexpected cost of $100. Yeah. There's no amount of unexpected cost that I could absorb right now. Uh, again, really speaks to about the one in five to a quarter of Canadians who are really, really uh, at this stage, at, at a place where they they appear to be saying, look, we're, we're about to slip underwater here. Um, we just can't handle it. The other thing that I really note with these folks, uh, often they're ones with kids at home. Uh, they tend to be uh, women more often than men. Uh, they also tend to be people between the ages of uh, 35 and 54. What's going on in your life between 35 and 54? You're raising kids, you're paying a mortgage, you're doing car payments, you might still be paying off student debt. There's a lot going on. Uh, these folks are also saying, look, the, the, the things that we're not spending on, sure, say 50% of Canadians across the board are cutting on discretionary spending, so those extras. But the number who are saying, we're not even putting money into an RSP or a TFSA this year, forget saving, we have no pad to save, there's just nothing available. Uh, we are having to, to really cut back on our groceries and the quality of food. We're cutting back on things like eating out. You talk to people in the restaurant industry all the time. They're coming out of two years of a pandemic, and now their patrons, their customers are saying, sorry, we can't eat out anymore. These are the things that, that are, are being put on hold, on pause, or being cut out of life entirely. Speaking to Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reed Institute, about the cost of living crunch out there. So let's talk about young families for a minute, Shachi. So for families with kids at home, kids in childcare, how does that factor in to this cost pressures that people are feeling? Well, childcare is another major cost driver, as we know, Mike, and it may not be one that's going up, but availability combined with a cost combined with all the other cost pressures means that it is just one more thing. It is one more added weight to that financial burden. So I mentioned to you just a moment ago, among those Canadians who, who, uh, who say that they're having the hardest time of it right now in terms of keeping up with cost of living, it's parents of kids under the age of 13, so parents with younger kids at home who are um, among the most likely to, to be struggling right now among the most likely to say, yeah, I couldn't afford an unexpected $1,000 bill. That's not something that I could keep up with at the moment, are most likely to be identifying themselves as tightening their belts at this point. Affordable childcare is a real hot political topic in the country right now. You have lots of governments promising cheap childcare, $10 a day childcare. Now we're talking $20 a day childcare in BC. That's a hot topic. Like, are, are a lot of Canadians... Would, would that help a lot of Canadians if, if governments can actually deliver on that? 
You know, the length and breadth of the number of Canadians uh, it would help, not a lot, but the amount of help that it would provide to the Canadians who need that help would be very significant, right? So when you talk about sheer numbers, well, you know, our birth rates are not exactly skyrocketing, Mike. So uh, the number of people out there who have small kids uh, is, is not huge relative to the overall population. But when you think about the impact that something like that would make in the lives of those parents of small kids, that's where it, it really, really drives home its value. That's why it's such a hot political topic, because these are uh, a really motivated, debt-stressed, money-stressed group of people who apply an incredible amount of political pressure, as they should, because they are disproportionately affected by a lot of cost-of-living issues these days. You mentioned briefly, Shachi, people saving for their retirement. And I know lots of people, I'm sure you do too, they've reached that retirement age. They've reached the the promised land when they shouldn't be working anymore. And guess what? They're still working. They still need a job. They still need income. Today is the last day right today to uh, contribute to an RSP for the, the previous tax year. So today's the deadline. You found out, and you touched on this briefly, that there are a lot of people out there who maybe they would normally make a con- contribution to their RSP today. Maybe not this year, though. Maybe not this year. So, that, so that's getting put off. It's getting put by the wayside. Look, the good news is you can always, I, I'm not a financial planner, Mike, but I think you can always contribute to a TFSA. So that is the good news. But for those who would be putting money aside for their retirement, also looking to bank on that, that income tax benefit or advantage to being able to do that, to not have the pad, put a little bit of money away from when you're older. And when we look at the poverty rates of, of seniors in this country, particularly the poverty rates of older women, of senior women who are living alone, uh, these, are, these are decisions as an adult that you really don't want to put off. You don't want to put off contributing for your retirement. If you can absolutely avoid it, you should do it if you, yeah. if you, if you can. And so when we see such significant numbers of people saying, it's just not something we're going to do this year, again, to me, that's, that's a big red flag in terms of where we are uh, around availability of, of uh, assets, of cash to put aside. It means that, you know, for a lot of Canadians, again, a good half of them might, there just isn't any extra right now. Great insights as always, Shachi. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me.